felt the Holy Spirit this morning, amen. I want you to just bow your head just for a minute. I, I just felt like the Lord impressed upon us some really important things today. I, I want to personally thank Pascal and Randall for just really obeying the Lord and launching out and just listening to the Lord. You know, I, I really feel that we're living literally in some changing times in our nation, but I actually believe that we're living in exciting times for the church. And even though there are things changing around us, I believe God is shaking everything that can be shaken. How many of you know that? So Hebrews says that God would shake everything that can be shaken. And it's the reason is, is so that the things that are unshakable will come to the surface. And this morning, I, I just feel the Holy Spirit is wanting to solidify in our hearts what He's doing. And He wants to bring and arrest our attention this morning because His hand is upon you. God's hand is upon you this morning. And I, I believe there are those that have kind of let the dream die. You've let a dream die. And some of us have kind of let go of the promise. And the Lord is here to blow a fresh wind upon you this morning. And there's a word I want to give to you. It's this. The Lord is for you. The Lord is for you. He's here to give you a future and a hope. And the thoughts that He thinks towards you are thoughts of good. Can you say amen? God has good thoughts about His people. And He loves His people very much. And you know every day, do you know that every day God's trying to speak to you? Every day, He's trying to get your attention. In Revelations 3, when He was speaking to the church at Laodicea, He closed His, his word to the Laodicean church. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. It's interesting, Jesus was standing outside of his own house, knocking, trying to get into his own house. Isn't that amazing? Guess where his house is? Your heart. Your house, or his house, is your heart. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that means your body and your heart is his house. Amen? And the Bible says every day he stands at the door and he's knocking. And what he's doing, he wants to come in and he says, I want to commune with you. I want to sup with you. I want to dine with you. I want to come and I want to have precious time and fellowship with you. We have a God who created you and he designed you, each one of you, intricately and specially. You know, in the beginning, before God ever created the heavens and the earth, God did not have mankind. He had the angelic hosts. He had the hosts of heaven. But He created man for a relationship. He didn't create you a robot. He didn't create you like the angels. He gave you a soul. He gave you a spirit and a will. And the Bible says in Psalms 139 that all of your parts were written in His book. And all of his thoughts about you are special. He says, if I could number them, it would be more than the sands of the sea. That's how much God thinks about you. 
You know, we need to have a renewed understanding this morning <clears throat> about how much our God thinks about us. We live in a very negative society. But when we become healed and when the Lord restores and renew our mind, we begin to come into that fellowship and relationship where daily we walk with our Heavenly Father. He transforms us from becoming orphans into sons and daughters. Amen? I want to pray over you this morning because I, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to do a transforming work in our minds. Amen? You're going to move from being an outsider to an insider. You're going to move from being an orphan into a son, into the family. He's called you to live in heavenly places this morning. Father, we thank you today for the presence of the Lord. We thank you for the word of the Lord. <clears throat> we thank you that you come as the sheep, as the shepherd of your sheep. And Lord, you said that you are the good shepherd that leads your sheep out and they find green pastures. And today, Lord, there are those who, even among us this morning, they've been wrestling. Some, Lord, might even feel lost. They might even feel that they've been wandering for some time. But Lord, you come as the shepherd of our soul to lead us beside still waters and to cause us to lie down. <clears throat> I pray today, Lord, that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Do you know it's a good day? Amen. Do you know that God, I've said this before, but God is in a good mood. Amen. He's not in a bad mood. Amen. He doesn't have a smirk on His face. He actually looks at you and He smiles. Amen. We have a happy Jesus. He really is happy. You may say, well, I thought God said He's coming back and He's going to strike the earth with His wrath. Yes, He will. When He comes again, He's going to come. And those, He's going to, the Bible says, the wrath of God will quench His enemies. But if you're blood-bought and you're under the blood of Jesus, I want to tell you, you're under the smile of heaven this morning. And even if you don't know Jesus, He is still reaching out to you this morning. Amen? Now, I want, I want to share something with you. I, I want you to jump with me back into the book of Judges, chapter 6. Now, I'm going to share something with a few minutes. I want to go back, and I'm going back into the life of Gideon <clears throat> again this morning. The Lord keeps bringing me back to Gideon. And... We all know the story of Gideon, how God took a man, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and he was, the Bible says, he was the weakest. And he was a fearful, angry man. And he was a man that questioned why. How many here have ever asked God, why? Why, oh God, is this happening? Now, this was the kind of man that Gideon was. He was a fearful man. And it was in a time when Israel, as a nation, it's in Judges 6, when Israel as a nation, the Bible says, they had wandered away from the Lord. And when they wandered away from the Lord, the Bible says that the Lord delivered Israel into the hand of the Midianites. Now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament primarily, 
are stories, books of the Old Testament are stories about the nation of Israel. It starts out with Adam and Eve, and then it goes into the, the descendants of Adam, and then we come to the point in the time where God spoke to Noah, and we know that he flooded the earth in Genesis 10, 11, and 12. But then when you get into chapter 11, it's where God speaks to a servant called Abraham. And then he called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees. And God spoke to this man called Abraham. Paul refers to Abraham as the father of the faith. And in other words, he sets him up as an example. And, and we find that as God speaks to Abraham, God gave him an incredible promise. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make of you nations. Nations will come out of you and kings will come. There's going to be a royal bloodline that's going to come from your descendants. Royalty and kingship is going to descend out of your bloodline, Abraham. And then God said that in you, Abraham, <clears throat> all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, you know what? It's kind of funny. When you really get into Genesis and you read the story about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it really is a soap opera. I mean, there's enough stuff in that book in Genesis. I mean, there's conspiracy for murder. There's adulteries. There's incest. There's lying. There's cheating. There's wife manipulating husbands. I mean, you get into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's hatred between brothers. You wonder, God, how in the world and why in the world would you ever choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, guess why God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? To give us hope. Amen. Because we're not much different than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Abraham was a coward. It's amazing. When God says he's a man of faith, a father of faith, here's the guy who tried to trade his wife off and convince her to be a sister, to save his own skin, and to put his own wife in jeopardy. I wouldn't really call that a man of faith. But it's interesting when you get into Hebrews 11, which is called the, the, the Hall of Fame, God doesn't even bring those issues up about Abraham. Aren't you grateful and thankful that God doesn't remember our sins? Amen. He doesn't remind it. He doesn't bring it to us. But when you get into Hebrews 11, we, it shows how Abraham believed God and trusted God for the promises. And then Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac, his wife, Rebecca. And boy, did they have some serious marriage problems. You have a wife who keeps things from her husbands. She shows favoritism to her son, Jacob. And because Esau went and married the Edomite women, and you have a breakdown in this family. Finally, when Isaac is old and blind, he's going to uh, uh, bless Esau with the birthright. But instead, Rebekah goes behind Isaac's back and says, Jacob, you go in, put some gloves on because your brother's arms are hairy and deceive your father. Wow. When I read stories like that, praise God, there's still hope for me. At least I haven't deceived my father. But, but yet God's promise was still faithful even though these servants seem to have blown it. Now in no way 
are we suggesting that we can just live in sin and go out and blow things like that and expect the blessing of God? Because as you also read in the book of Genesis, that God had a way, because He loved His kids so much, God has a way of bringing us back into line, doesn't He? Amen. We read in, this, in the book, as we go into the book of Genesis, we find how Jacob, who stole his brother's birthright, thought he was getting away with murder there, and he's running like a coward to his uncle Laban, and he spends 20 years going in circles. And you know, it's amazing what goes around comes around, doesn't it? We know that in the story of Jacob, Jacob deceived his father and deceived his brother, but guess what happens? They come all right back to him because his uncle deceived him. And he cheated him out of his wages. And I, here's the point, folks. You know what? It's a principle through Scripture. What you sow, you will reap. So it's best not to sow bad seed. By the way, if you don't like the fruit in your garden, check the seed you're sowing. Because if you don't like what you're growing, maybe the seeds you're sowing are not the right seed. But we find here that all through the Scripture, irregardless of their faults and their shortcomings, God was faithful. Everyone say that with me. God is faithful. God is still faithful to you. And He's not changed His mind about what He said to you. Some of you, God wants to take the promises and the dreams that He's given you. He wants, to, wants you to blow the dust off those dreams. and pro He wants you to begin to, He wants to breathe fresh life on those dreams in your life and He wants you to put that in front of you and resurrect your mission and your vision today. Amen. We serve a God who is really for us, not against us. Amen. You're no longer a victim. You're victorious in Jesus this morning. So when we go back into the Old Testament and we read these promises, by the way, do you know that the Bible that the New Testament church read was the Old Covenant? And God, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God began to bring the revelation of how Jesus and His kingdom would unfold even in its day. But we come into the Bible when Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and God 430 years later chose a servant by the name of Moses Moses came as a deliverer and delivered Israel and they brought them into the wilderness now it was only an eight-day journey from the wilderness of Paran into the promised land but God kept Israel from going into the land because there were giants in the land and Israel was not the kind of people that wanted to engage in battles God wanted them to understand that the key to conquering and moving ahead, the key to your victories, you've got to embrace the battle. We cannot run from the battle. There are battles that God wants you to confront, face, and He wants you to grow in those battles you're confronting, even right now. Amen? Now we know Jesus has delivered us and He's won the greatest battle of all, and that's the battle of our redemption. But there are battles that God wants us to grow with because He wants us... He's coming back for a triumphant, mature church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He's not coming back for a weak, frivolous, timid, fearful, just church that's just kind of hanging on for the rapture. No, that's not the kind of church He's coming back. He's coming back for a church that is going to be strong, triumphant, 
And when it comes back, that church is going to be vibrant. Now that church may go through persecution and there may be some changes that take place in our life, but he is he which hath begun a good work will perfect it to completion in our lives. Amen? Amen. And when we come into the book of Judges and Joshua finally brought the children of Israel into the promised land and then we come into the book of Judges in Judges chapter 3 it said that the generation following the generation of Joshua listen to me it said these were the grandchildren of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. It says that when they came into the promised land, listen to me on this, it said these children did not know the Lord. Here's the reason. Joshua and his age group, that second generation, when they went into the promised land and they begin to fight the battles, listen what they did. They left their kids at home. They did not bring their children. They did not tell their children about the battles and about God's right arm, His right hand of victory. And it said that third generation, which begins in the book of Judges, it says they did not know the Lord. And because they did not know the Lord, the children of Israel begin to wander and they become influenced by the culture of the pagan nations around them, and they succumb into idolatry, and they went into bondage and into defeat. Now the reason I bring that up is, parents, listen to me. Do you know that God wants you to train up your children in the way they should go? When my wife and I walk through a battle, do you know that we actually bring our children into it? Because I want them to know from the beginning to the end, I don't give them every detail of the gory stuff, but there's times what my wife and I used to tell our sons that we're going through a season, Jared, David, and Aaron, and I want you to understand we're, we need you to stand with us as we go against this enemy whether it was employment, whether it was sickness, whether it was an issue, we brought our kids to prayer. We brought them with us into the things. Unless, guess what? Our kids are serving God today. Let me tell you, what you prioritize is what your kids will begin to, to, to make as a habit in their life. You know what I see parents doing? The parents do this. Parents do this all the time. You're going to brush your teeth before you go to bed. Okay. Okay, I'll brush my teeth. You're going to do your homework. Okay, I'll do my homework. But for some reason, I've heard parents say, well, pastor, I don't want to really push religion on because, you know, I don't want to become legalistic now. Well, guess what? They grow up. They become passive about the things of God. But by God, they got shiny white teeth. Their teeth are white, and they brush them every day. Why? Because my mother made me what? Brush my teeth. They made me do my, I'm smart. I got 4.0s. Because you may, but for some reason, when it comes to the things of God, we just come back. Well, I, I don't want to really press it with the things of the Lord because I, I haven't really lived the life that I should, and so I am probably a hypocrite. And there, see, the devil plays that game with parents. You need to understand it's okay to be transparent to your children. It's okay to say you blew it. I do it all the time, by the way. 
By the way, do you, know I'm, do you know why I'm even up here as a pastor? It's not because I have won lots of battles. Actually, it's because I have fallen on my face so many times and God's grace is so good, He has chosen to use me to let you know that if He can use a flunky and a failure like me, you will definitely have more opportunity to win. Now, I'm not saying I'm a flunky, but I'm saying that there's been times that I've fallen on my face. But His grace was sufficient. We've told our kids that. I cannot tell you how many times as a husband, as a father, I've had to apologize to my kids. I've said, I've missed it, guys. Pray for Dad. Do you know what that does in the eyes of your children? It actually elevates you in their eyes. Good preaching, Pastor Ray. Amen. Good. Hallelujah. It's important to be transparent. Really important there. It's important to understand that in order for your children to really grasp what Jesus can do is for us to be open and honest with them. It's important for pastors to be transparent to the people. I believe ministry needs to be transparent to the flock. Really transparent. Because in order for you to really grasp the beauty and the glory of the grace of God and how God works, we've got to have leaders that are transparent. We've got to have ministry that just doesn't give the pie in the sky kind of ideology. But we've got to... I love what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20 when he was speaking to the elders at, at Ephesus. He says, brethren, I want, you, I, I want you to understand and not be ignorant of the fact that that the Holy Spirit has warned me and told me that in every city, chains and persecutions are waiting for me. And there are Jews who have plotted against my life and false brethren who have, have turned on me. But none of these things move me. And neither do I count my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy. Paul was transparent. And God used that man in a very powerful way. But here in the book of Judges, chapter 6, we have a man by the name of Gideon, and I want to just start here in chapter 6, verse 11. And it says that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the Terebinth tree, which is an Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, which while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Lord, if you're with us, why then has all these things happened to us? Where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us, delivered us into the hand of the Midianites? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go! Everyone say, Go! Go! In other words, advance, occupy, increase. Go! In this might of yours. Everyone say this. I have it. Do you know that you have something in you that's going to take you all the way? We need to stop looking for everything else out here. You have it. You have it. The angel said, go in this strength of yours. Now, I want to bring, bring a New Testament parallel, parallel here. Because this story is a picture of revival. 
It is a picture about a man like hundreds of other stories in the Bible. It's a picture about a man who is facing some incredible odds that are against him. It's interesting in this passage that when he is confronted by the angel, it is the first time that he's ever heard this kind of language. Because in the land, Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites. The Bible says they're full of fear, they're running, they have been a nation that has been ripped off by the Midianites. How many here are tired of being ripped off by the enemy? Well, that's what happened with the children of Israel. They were ripped off. They were displaced out of their land. And not only that, they had actually succumbed, sad to say, they had succumbed into believing that they had to become the slaves to the Midianites which ruled over them. The saddest thing that can happen to any Christian is when you succumb to accepting defeat. When you just, well, that's just the way it is. I'm not going to make it. We're just bound for divorce. It's not going to, our kids aren't going to, I'm not going to, I'll never be able to get advanced in my employment better than this. No, we've got to stop confessing that kind of defeat. You see, that was what, what was happening here with the children of Israel. When the angel of the Lord appeared to him, I, I want you to listen to me, because God appeared to him at his most vulnerable and weakest moment. And do you, you will find a pattern throughout the Bible that God always seems to appear to people at their most weakest and vulnerable point. I mean, I don't know about you, but that, that's a hint right there. That's a hint that when you're at your weakest, your most vulnerable point, it's when you're the angriest, when you're the maddest, when you're the baddest, when you feel like you've just gone beyond, do you know it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him at that point. Now some of you may not realize this. God may actually speak to you through people that you would not even think. God may use people to cross your path, to speak into your life, that you may think, ah, oh, you're just one of the other guys around here, but for some reason you've got a language of faith. I remember one time after a message, I had a guy, he's not here in the church, but he came to the church one time. He says, you know, Pastor Ray, you just kind of preach a pie-in-the-sky message. I mean, do you actually believe that what God says in the Bible is really for today? And I said, are you saved? Are you saved? And I wasn't trying to be negative, but, but are you saved? You know, my Bible says that all things are possible to them to believe. And, but, but, but here, in this situation, in this dire hour, the angel of the Lord focuses on two things. It's, first of all, this encounter with this angel. And the Bible says that, that even Gideon didn't perceive that he was an angel. It's possible that your eyes can be blinded to the divine encounter that God's bringing to you because your eyes are so focused on the problem. We magnify the problem. But in the word of the Lord, two things God said. The Lord is with you. And number two, O mighty man of valor. O mighty man of valor. Now, the reason that took him by surprise is because in the land, no one was speaking a word of faith. They were speaking 
And they were glorifying, they were exalting in giving praise to the power of the enemy and how they were suppressed. The Midianites, you just don't know what the Midianites are doing. They're coming after us. They're going to shake us up. They're going to rip us off. They're going to take all the fruits in our farms. We're just going to be. And where's God? Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? And so, guess what happened? Gideon asked three questions. He asked them, why is this happening? Number two question. Where is the God who produces the miracles that He promised? And the third question is, how can God ever use a guy like me who's the least of his house and the weakest of his family? I'm the least and I'm the weakest. And you know what's so interesting? Is the angel doesn't answer one of those questions. And let me tell you why God doesn't answer the why question. It's because if God ever answers the why question, He would allow you to stay on that level of unbelief and fear. God kept His vision and He kept the promise before. He never answered the why. He never answered the how. He said, listen guy, you're a mighty man of valor. How? Go in the strength of yours. Why? Can't happen. Every time he asked why, how, and what happened, God didn't answer it. And you know why God will never answer those kind of questions? Because if he answered it, what it would do, it would keep you on that level where you're always asking why and how. And do you know that God is moving at a pace and God is so supernatural and He's so infinite that if He ever took the time to give you all the whys and the how comes, nothing would get done. So He doesn't answer the why. He just expects you to go in this strength of yours. What an encounter! The Bible says as you go down the chapter, it says finally Gideon perceived, wow, I guess I'm under the favor of God. The Bible says that. He says, I, I, I guess, wow, I've got some favor coming. Here's a guy who actually believes in me. Here's a guy who believes there's a vision and a mission for me to accomplish. I'm not just going in circles anymore. I've got a vision. He tells me, that I've got something inside. You know what that something was inside? It was the knowledge of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Do you know that all of you right now have what it takes to make you a winner and an overcomer in every area of your life? You've got it. Everyone say, I got it. You see, the enemy wants to think, no, you don't have it. Look at your track record. You're a failure. You're a flunky. Look at all the times. Man, do you want me to bring out all your accounts and show you how many times you blow it if everybody only knew how bad you are? That's the way the devil works on us. He comes as an accuser of the brethren. But the angel of the Lord kept saying, listen, guy, you're a mighty man of valor. You're going to go. And it says this, and you shall defeat the Midianites. You're going to defeat them. Go in this strength. You, everyone say, I, I will defeat the enemy in my life. I'm going to defeat it. I'm going to defeat poverty. I'm going to defeat fear. I will defeat 
every accusation. The See, the problem with Israel is they, be, they had succumbed with fear because they allowed thoughts, strongholds, thoughts of bondage in their minds to be exalted against who they were. What happens is when people begin to lose sight of who they are, listen, if you go back into verse 11, you know what it says in verse 11? An, an amazing thing, the Holy Spirit showed me this yesterday. It says that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. And the Lord said, don't go off of that verse. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. How do you get bread out of a wine press? Well, you know what happens? The Lord showed me this. He says, when people get their eye off the vision and the mission that God has for them, you will try to look for things. You will try to find bread out of things that can never give you bread. You will find yourself trying to find life. That's what's happening today. There are people in the world that are trying to find happiness by thinking if they have money, it will never produce joy. There are even Christians today. They're, they got their eyes on things, trying to find purpose, fulfillment. Here's a man who's trying to produce bread in a thing that produces wine. In other words, you're going to find yourself exasperating and exercising, put a lot of effort into things only to find out in the end, wow, I never got what I was really hoping to find. And you know, isn't that where the world is? I was really hoping to find some joy. Really hoping to find some peace. I've been really trying to get some bread out of this wine press, but it doesn't seem to work. That's because the man had lost sight of the thing God called him to. And you find yourself in the wrong place, expending a lot of energy, spinning your wheels, because you've lost sight on who you are and what God has put, called you to. But here, the Lord keeps reminding him, you're a mighty man of valor, you're going to go in this strength, you're going to defeat the Midianites. And finally, the Lord begins to convince him that the favor of the Lord is upon him. That comes from the encounter. That's, by the way, what God wants to bring to all of us this morning. He wants you to experience the encounter of his favor and his favor and blessing upon you as you go. The second thing, the angel begins to give him a lesson on cooking. Because it was there that Gideon leaves. He says, hey, by the way, wait a minute while I go and kill a goat get some unleavened bread, and we're going to have a little feast. And so he goes, the Bible says, as you go on down there, it says that he put this meat in a basket, and he took some broth and spices and herbs and put it in a pot, and then he brings the basket in the pot, and he brings it before the Lord. And anybody who knows cooking, by the way, I'm not a real big cook, but I thought, at least I thought, that when you cook or broil meat, you put it in the pot. Or on a grill. But what happens is the Lord is now teaching him to walk in the miraculous. Listen to me. God will use little things to show you how to work big miracles. And so what he does, he brings the meat and the broth and the pot and the basket with the meat in it, and the angel says something that's really strange. He says, take your meat out of the basket and put it on this dead, old, dry, cold rock. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a logical man, if you're a connoisseur, if you're a cook, you'd say, well, 
we're going to be waiting a long time for this meat to cook in the sun. He says, put it in, and then he said this, pour the broth out. Well, wait a minute, don't you like my broth? I wanted to bring my broth, I wanted to, he says, pour it out. Now, you know, if you're a cook, you'd probably say, wow, I guess we're not going to have a meal today. The Bible says that when he did this, that the angel took the staff and touched the meat. I want everyone to say the word touch. See, do you know God wants to put fire? He wants to touch you with holy fire. When the staff touched the meat, the Bible says that fire came out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And, and, and Gideon said, whoa! And then the Bible says his eyes were open. He says, I have perceived that I have seen the face of God. He finally got it. I have perceived that I have seen. You read the, read the scripture. I perceive I have seen the face of God. And what happens is, this guy is so blown away. By the way, folks, do you know God doesn't waste miracles just to do an exhibition for you? The purpose for God's miracles is to equip you and to empower you for a life of what He's going to do through you. He takes a little lesson on cooking. And I call it the microwave miracle. God takes that meat, instead of broiling it for hours, God zaps it in one second, and all of a sudden the thing's cooked and ready to eat. And it says, then Gideon perceived. Well, I perceived I have seen the face of God. All of a sudden his eyes are open. But then, the third thing is an interesting thing. And let's, let's go down to the next few verses on this because what I'm trying to do here is build the, the, the Scripture. There are stages in this passage that is preparing this man to be a mighty man of valor. Aren't you grateful and thankful that when God starts you out on a mission that He's going to take you to the stages to prepare you for what He's called you for? He's not just going to drop you and send you. He's going to take you through the stages. And by the way, let me just say this. There are some of you this morning that God has planted at New Life Fellowship. This is a stage of your development. God has brought you here to develop you for a new level. He's brought you here for a new level. And God may use people. God's going to use situations. And if you can hang in there, if you can stick with it, even though at times God may ask you to pour the broth out and put the meat on a rock. And it might, by the way, if you want to see miracles, you've got to be willing to let God offend the mind. You cannot see the miraculous until the mind has become offended. See, God can't use logic. God will not use I don't know about you guys, but man, I'll tell you, there's things God asks you to do like praying and believing God in the midst of a problem. Or how about showing forgiveness to your enemy? How many believe that takes a miracle? Forgiving and loving your enemy. Here's another one, tithing. Why would God want me to give 10%? That doesn't make sense. 
it offends the mind. But for some reason, it produces miracles. All of a sudden, I got a, I got a promotion. God's given me a breakthrough. I, all of a sudden, I don't understand. I've got favor coming in everywhere. I'll never forget years ago when my wife and I, this was beyond, has nothing to do with tithing, but God began to speak to us about giving, not just money, but opening our home. And all of a sudden, we just saw favor coming in on different levels in our life. It was supernatural. Do you know what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 28? God says that those who hearken diligently to obey all that I say, that all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. In other words, you're going to actually have to ask God, God, slow the blessings down. Stop it. It's too much. That's what it means to overtake. To be overtaken means to literally apprehend or tackle. How many of you would like to be tackled with some blessing? Tackle me, God. Just blow me over with blessing. That's what he says. God's not stingy. He's not just eking it out. He's going to shovel the boatloads and bucket loads. He's going to open the window of the heaven upon you because we trust in Him. Amen. He's not a stingy God. He's, he, God's not small-minded, but He wants His people not to be small-minded either. See, Gideon was a small-minded. He had a weak mind. He had a victim's mind. And God was taking him from a slave mentality, from a victim mentality, into an overcomer, mighty man of valor, the kind of fighting mentality that would make him the champion God intended him to be. And so what he does is he starts him out with a cooking lesson. He starts him out with microwaving the meat. But he tells him to do something with the meat that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense to put your meat on a rock and then pour the broth out. What do I do? Don't you understand all the hours I spend in the kitchen putting the spices and everything together, marinate this juice, and now you say, pour it out. Amen. See, part of faith means letting go. I'm releasing control. I know I'm speaking to somebody here this morning. I'm going to release control. Lord, I'm letting go. I'm going to release control of my meat, of my broth. I'm going to release control. I'm going to give it to God. And then, as we come down this passage here, powerful passage, notice it says, that, verse 22, chapter 6, now he perceived that he was an angel of the Lord and then he gets all freaked out. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And thank God the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Chill, my friend. Do not fear. You will not die. Then it says, I love this, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Orpha of the Aborites. Now it came to pass that on the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, your second bull, seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the rock of the power arrangement. In the proper, everyone say proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer the burnt wood in the, uh, of the image which you shall cut down. 
The two last things I want to share in closing here is this. God begins to captivate His attention. He empowers him with vision and he says, the Lord's with you. You're going to defeat the Midianites. I'm going to take you and single-handedly you're going to deliver the entire nation of Israel from the oppressive rule of the Midianites. By the way, do you know that all the ites, the Canaanites, Jebusites, Hittites, all the ites in the Old Testament is a picture of bondage. It's a picture of the demonic that rule or entrap God's people. You ever just understand the parallels there? But here God calls this young man who fills these the weakest and the least of his family's house, and after the Lord begins to reveal this supernatural power, it so moves him that the Bible says he begins to erect an altar unto the Lord. In the Old Testament, it's important, By the way, do you know that God wants us to start building altars? Now, I'm not talking about Old Testament altars. Let me tell you what I mean by an altar. An altar in the Old Testament happened to be something they would gather with stones, they would bring it together when they put wood on top of it, and they would bring their offering and offer as a sacrifice. Literally, the Hebrew word for altar means the place of death or the place of slaughter. The reason why they would build an altar was because an altar would commemorate a specific event or a revelation. For instance, when God appeared to Abraham, Abraham built an altar. After the flood, Noah got off the ark. It says, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord. We find that throughout the Bible, Moses, after they crossed the Red Sea, it says, and Moses built an altar under the Lord. An altar happened to be a place that would be holy ground. It became a place where people would begin to recite the covenant that God made with Moses and with Abraham. It was a place where they would raise up. It was considered and called a high place. And as they would begin to offer their offering to the Lord, an interesting thing would happen. As they would offer the offering, the God of heaven would come and ignite the offering with fire. It became a place of encounter because they built an altar. By the way, do you know that you built an altar this morning? Let me tell you an altar you built. You came to church. Do you know that coming to church is building an altar? When you set the time aside and say, kids, let's get, oh, God, we had a late Saturday night. I'm tired. I want to sleep in. I deserve a break today. No. We're going to get up and go to the house of the Lord and worship. We're building an altar unto the Lord. We're commemorating. We're giving thanks to God for what He has done for us. Building an altar was a place that become a place of holy ground. It, it was a place that was a sacred thing. It was something that was highly visible. It was something you were never ashamed of. It was something that would, would give testimony to the fact that you were a child of Jehovah. 
that you were a God and, and that my house, my home, is where Jesus Christ is glorified. In my house, where Carol and I live, we built several altars. Now I understand I'm not talking about physical altars, but what I'm talking about, when we talk about altars, we're talking about things that have become a priority in our life. That's what an altar is. How many of you believe that seeking first the kingdom of God is a high priority? Well, that's an altar. It's, in other words, in this house, we've made a decision that in this house, Jesus will be glorified. In this house, because we honor the Lord, we will allow no corrupt communication to come out of our mouth because we are Christians. It doesn't mean because we're better than everybody else. It's because our desire and purpose is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. In this house, we will not allow negative language to go back and forth because Jesus is exalted. We've built an altar. Now it's interesting. When Israel... Every time Israel was defeated by the Canaanites, you know the first thing that those enemies would do? They would seek to wipe out the memory of Jehovah by destroying the altars. Do you know one altar we have in America? It was the altar of Bibles and prayer in the classroom. Do you know that that altar's been removed? And we have other altars now raised up. It's called the idol of humanism. The idol of of liberalism it's the idol of, of 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 anything that puts man first that's a dangerous altar the bible says that when you offer altars sacrifice on the altar a person who makes the offering also becomes a partaker of the sacrifice you never came to god you never come before the lord with empty hands every priest was always to bring an offering in the New Testament, the Bible says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Upon what altar? What altar? God is offer, we, we, we offer ourselves unto Him. Now, we're no longer building some physical altars. But one thing we have done, one thing that we realize is that every time you begin to erect an altar. Anytime you begin to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God and we're going to glorify God in this house. We're going to set Jesus. We're going to have family devotions. We're building an altar. Anytime you do that, do you know you are going to come in conflict with some spirits? There's going to be some spirits that are going to say, oh, why do we got to do that? I guarantee you. Because the enemy doesn't like prayer in the home. Did you notice in the book of Judges 6 that no sooner than Gideon began to erect the idol of erect the altar of the Lord, that at the same time, how many of you know you can't build altars to God and allow the altars of Baal to exist? Because he said, go down and tear down the altars of Baal. Now, you know what Baal worship was? Baal worship, <clears throat> the word Baal means father. But he means the father of rain. That's what it means. In other words, <clears throat> in fact, do you know why in 1 Kings 18, when 
Elijah called for it not to rain on the earth for three and a half years because it was an insult to the gods of Baal that Israel had fallen and was seduced into worshiping. And so when Elijah called for there to be no rain on the earth for three and a half years, it was an insult to the gods that Israel had become seduced and, and, and as they were beginning to believe and worship. And all of a sudden, they begin to cry out to Baal, Baal, send us rain, send us rain. And Elijah came around and said, uh, rain's not coming. Well, why, Elijah? Well, because your God is dead and my God lives. And he said, there's not going to be any rain. And he's out to prove a point that Baal is dead and my God lives. So for three and a half years, there was no rain. And then finally, you know the story. One day, God calls for a showdown on Mount Carmel and God tells Ahab, go get your 450 prophets, meet at the place of the camp out and build this altar and then saturate it, put a trench around it, soak it with water, and let's call on God. You call on Baal. You know the story. And Elijah sat back there. Boy, he was cocky and he was making fun of those prophets. And thought, hey, maybe Baal's gone on a vacation. Maybe sleeping. Maybe he's sick. He can't get up this morning. I mean, Elijah is mocking these guys. And finally he says, all right, guys, step aside. Let me show you the real action. And he gets up there. He tells them to drench the thing three times. And then he calls fire, and the fire comes down, licks up the water, consumes the sacrifice, and then he says, now kill the, old, the, uh, the prophets of Baal. And God proved himself. But see, Baal worship was alive and well. By the way, do you know Baal worship is alive and well in America right now? Let me tell you what Baal worship is. It's money. Baal worship is humanism. Baal worship is my agenda. That's Baal worship. Anything that puts me above God is Baal worship. See, Baal worship was nothing but an extension of man's corrupt heart that he began to make these idols from. So Gideon, he goes to the land as he erects this altar and he establishes the priority of worship. But as he does that, he starts tearing down these idols of Baal. And guess what happens? His own brothers turn on him and try to kill him. Do you know that when you start doing things for the Lord, your own friends might turn on you? When you start doing things for God, there may be people that will say, wait, wait a minute. We've had this tradition for years. Why are you upsetting the boat here? But you know what? Gideon, God was preparing this man to be a deliverer. And all of a sudden, he begins to tear down these idols. And his father comes to his defense. He says, hey, if Baal's alive, if he's going to kill him, let him come out. Let him kill his son. And finally, you know the rest of the story. Where Gideon goes, and they come against the Midianites. And, and, and Gideon was still afraid, and God gave him a word to go down. He says, if you want to know the way your enemy's thinking, go down. And he goes down, and he hears two guys talking in a tent. And here's these guys saying, you know, I had a dream that Gideon was coming after us. He was going to kill us. And, and it encouraged Gideon. You know the beautiful thing here is that when we're weak, God is so patient with us as He's training and preparing us. 
Gideon goes back, he blows the trumpet, 300 guys go after these thousands of Midianites and defeats them all. And then the Bible says at the end of his life, they tried to make him the leader, but he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be the leader. He says, you guys didn't receive me in the beginning, I don't want to be it now. Here's the point, folks. God has his hand on us. God has his hand on our lives. What's the lesson we learn from something like this? Is that first of all, we never want to despise the days of small beginnings. We never want to belittle what God has spoken over us because God can take people that feel small and turn them into giant killers. God can take where you are at. You may be threshing wheat and trying to find bread in all the wrong places, but yet I'm here to tell you this morning, God's hand is upon you and He's given you something inside of you and we need to stand on that promise and we need to be empowered by that promise and believe Him every, all the way through. Amen? Amen? The second thing is this. Is we need to learn to be... We need to learn to grow and to be adjustable when He asks us to do things that seem at times to be beyond reason. God may ask us, to put the meat on the rock. He may ask us to trust Him in times where, oh Lord, this doesn't make sense. But as we trust Him, we experience the fire from Him. Amen. Let's bow your heads this morning.